0: Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This is where you get to listen to a curated collection of the editor's top picks of our recent articles. For when you need to be eyes-free or hands-free but still want to discover the seen and unseen. Sorry seems to be the hardest word by Graham Tomlin. Why is it so hard to say you're sorry? Over recent weeks, we've watched the story unfold of Boris Johnson and the Downing Street parties, his disdain towards the Privileges Committee reports suggesting he misled Parliament, and his resignation as an MP, insisting he was the victim of a witch hunt, rather than saying he had made a mistake and owning up. And it's not just Conservative Prime Ministers. Tony Blair has never quite come clean to say it was a mistake to lead the UK into war against Saddam Hussein on the basis of faulty intelligence on weapons of mass destruction. Church leaders don't escape either. Too often in the past, abusers have been shielded and moved on. And when the avoidance is revealed, ways have been found to avoid simply saying sorry. And then we all know the kind of apology that goes I'm sorry you feel that way, which is, of course, not an apology at all. Confession is difficult. Try it sometime. Next time you make a mistake, resolve to come clean before your friends, your spouse, your partner, your team at work. Confess your sins. Not straightforward, is it? If you find it as hard as I do, then join the club. Saying sorry has always been difficult, but our culture seems to make it even harder. We may not conduct literal witch hunts anymore, but we do metaphorical ones. If you are found out to have said the wrong thing, admit that you have changed your mind, or that you made a horrible mistake, you are likely to get accused of inconsistency, cancelled on social media, sacked from your job, vilified at the court of Twitter. It could mean losing your reputation, your job, your friends and, well, everything. A line of books have come out in recent times pointing out that we live in one of the most censorious of cultures. Andrew Doyle wrote a book called The New Puritans, arguing that identity politics and the social justice movement has spawned a quasi-religious form of cultural revolution driven by claims to moral purity and tolerating no dissent. Similarly, noah rothman wrote the rise of the new puritans identifying progressivism as a movement whose primary goal is to limit happiness yet perhaps the problem is not so much that we have become too much like the post-reformation puritans but that we are fundamentally unlike them puritans were a group of protestants who first emerged in the 16th century who wanted to ensure that the reformation in england was carried out thoroughly broadly according to the agenda of John Calvin in Geneva, and not, as they saw it, half-heartedly. The word Puritan was in fact invented by the group's enemies, accusing them of a joyless obsession with purity, an insistence on keeping rules, confessing sins and avoiding pleasures. As always, caricatures tell half or less than half of the truth. Of course there were censorious and frowning Puritans, but they also had a profound and ambitious notion of grace and goodness alongside a nuanced moral ecology that we have largely lost. The Puritans had a strong notion of the nexus of sin, confession, grace, forgiveness, absolution and the possibility of moral reformation. If your conscience tells you that you have done something wrong, you had better confess it sincerely to God and possibly to other people as well, which would be followed by the promise of divine forgiveness, which in turn had the potential to bring about a deep change of heart and habit so that the fault was not repeated again. They had a strong notion of divine grace, which interrupts normal human processes, unlocks hard hearts and kindles new desires in twisted souls. Now we have lost most of this. If you confess a sin in public, you are very unlikely to receive absolution in the court of Twitter or public esteem. The passing of time may mean people forget what you did and enable some rehabilitation, but forgiveness? Never. And if you think the likelihood of forgiveness is remote, what is the incentive for confession? You might as well brazen it out, pretend you've done nothing wrong, deny all charges, as the alternative is to see your career go down the tubes. Moreover, we don't tend to believe moral change is possible. A leopard never changes his spots, we say, with a knowing look. Ex-offenders find it hard to find jobs with a criminal record behind them, and disgraced politicians are unlikely to find a way back into public life. Now, of course, there are good reasons... our nervousness about this. Someone with a weakness for booze, sex or vulnerable children might never lose that tendency. And it's often better to be cautious than allow an abuser to abuse again. Yet at the same time, Christian moral theology has always held together in some tension a savvy awareness of the depth of human fallibility and self-deception with the belief in the possibility of deep spiritual and moral change christian faith paradoxically holds at the same time the most pessimistic and the most optimistic view of human nature that we are creatures capable of deep cruelty malice and selfishness but also that we are capable of kindness grace and true humility that spiritual and moral change is possible It's not always easy to spot the genuinely reformed character from the charlatan, but that is where wise discernment and character judgment comes in, holding the tension between naivety and cynicism. Back in the day, when more people went to church, they at least once a week had an occasion where they were invited to reflect on their sins of the past week, to confess them and receive absolution. That pairing is perhaps the key to the whole thing and why saying sorry is so hard in contemporary life because we have not only lost the ability to say sorry, we have also lost the ability to forgive. Of course, it's possible to go through the motions in church of saying you're sorry for your sins. It can be a means of cheap grace as the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer used to call it. But we are creatures of habit. Being forced to think back over the past week, the time you spoke to your kids in a harsh way, told a white lie to get out of trouble or forgot to phone someone who needed help because you were just too busy, somehow alerts you to your own inner mess. Add to that the promise that a heartfelt confession will be met with a pronouncement of genuine pardon, then it makes it just a little easier to say an abject apology to someone else when you need to. Not evading the truth, not excusing yourself, just saying, you messed up and got it wrong. Because you know what's coming afterwards? Forgiveness. The dynamic of confession, forgiveness and the possibility of moral change doesn't take away the need for shrewd judgment of character. But its loss, arguably, makes it much harder for us to say we are sorry and are truly repentant. Politicians, pundits and other public figures may find it hard to say sorry, and we are perhaps right to expect them to do so. But unless we learn how to forgive, then we will reap a harsh society where sorry is not just the hardest, but the rarest. <laughs> Chasing the rains. Why Gender Equality Matters in Development by Jane Kokouris rural communities living within Kenya's vast desolate and beautiful arid and semi-arid lands have suffered over the past two years from the drought that has hit the entire region rainfall during the rainy seasons has been in decline and with more than eighty per cent of Kenyans reliant on agriculture to survive Livelihoods and food security are at risk. Livestock numbers have depleted and the cattle that are still alive are underfed and unproductive. Women and girls, their skin shining with perspiration as they carry yellow jerry cans strapped to their heads, trek for up to tens of kilometres a day. They are in search of life-giving water water for their livestock and for their families, returning home each day with shoes and feet scuffed with sun-scorched red dust. This is not an image from decades ago, before we started working towards global sustainable development goals and COP targets. No, this is happening right now in our world. Speaking to a Maasai woman living in a remote part of rural Kenya on a recent work assignment earlier this year, I asked her about the impact the drought was having on her community, who are mainly reliant on nomadic cattle herding to live. She explained that the men were leaving for months on end in search of pasture for their cattle. They are chasing the rains, she said and leaving women to run the households and to try to make ends meet, looking after children and extended family. But the women at home lack authority to make any decisions about the land, about supplementing income with other employment, or about crops or food choices. They are disempowered by the social and cultural norms within their strict patriarchal Maasai society, and unable to stem the cascading flow of worsening poverty. According to the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization, people in poverty are more susceptible to climate change than wealthier people. Their livelihoods and assets are more exposed and they are more vulnerable to natural disasters that bring disease, crop failure, spikes in food prices and death. The World Bank estimates that without immediate action, climate change could push 120 million more people into poverty by 2030 and of those the threat of climate change on agriculture in Africa could push 30 million people into extreme poverty. Gender inequalities present in many countries and societies exacerbate this already existing vulnerability of the poor to climate change and women and girls are disproportionately affected by climate change. For example, an increase in child marriage has been observed in communities as a means of coping financially when a disaster occurs, such as a drought or flood. Families raise much-needed additional funds through dowries. Extreme weather events also increase the work burden of women and girls and their ability to perform their everyday tasks they must walk further to collect firewood and water due to dwindling resources. Women often lack land rights that are passed down through generations along patrilineal lines, as is the case in Kenya. Women's access to climate emergency funding in areas where such funding is available is therefore limited, as they don't possess the collateral in the form of land rights and ownership. In short... Women and girls fare significantly worse than men and boys when it comes to the impacts of poverty and climate change on well being. So, what does Jesus think about gender inequality? Jesus treated all people with equal love and respect. Gospel writer Luke records that he talked with respect about the Samaritans, who were seen by the Jews as racial inferiors. He reached out to prostitutes. And to lepers, who were social outcasts. He without doubt had a special sensitivity to those on the margins and towards those who are poor. And Jesus goes one step further. He also demonstrates a radical approach to gender equality in the Bible. For example, John, the writer of another gospel, describes his encounter with a woman at a well. As Jesus passes through a town on his journey through Samaria, he's tired and stops to sit by a well. When a Samaritan woman approaches to draw water, he asks her for a drink and begins a conversation that leads to Jesus showing her that he is the Son of God. This speaks about gender equality in several ways. First, Jesus spoke to the woman at a time when it was forbidden for a man to talk to a woman in public, even a wife or daughter. Jesus was also a rabbi, which would typically create multiple barriers between him and the woman, in terms of race, gender and lifestyle. But these things were not barriers for Jesus. He spoke to the woman as a human being. He demonstrated equality. Second, Jesus is vulnerable with her, asking her for a drink because he is thirsty. Here is a man asking a woman for help, openly admitting he needed something from her. Third, Jesus ignores the Talmud, a Jewish commentary on the Pentateuch that taught it was immoral to teach a woman the law. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He discusses theology with her, Jesus did not regard his Jewish racial identity, or being male, as superior. Jesus clearly demonstrates through his actions in this passage that all who trust in Christ are equally God's children, valued without differentiation or discrimination based on race or gender. As Jesus shows in this passage in John's Gospel, he doesn't consider women feebler, less capable, or less intelligent than men. Throughout the Bible, he continually recognises their value. In parallel, much evidence shows that greater gender parity in the world today would make it a richer and more sustainable place for human beings, biodiversity and the environment. Improved nutrition, food security, livelihoods and health come from greater access, benefit-sharing mechanisms and employment opportunities for women. For example, when women have greater control over household resources, spending patterns shift towards catering more for families' food and education. According to the OECD in Kenya and Malawi, levels of malnutrition are found to be lower among children in female-headed households. An NGO project that worked with women in agriculture across six countries found that when women were given ownership of land, and when women's participation was improved in farmers' collectives, income from agriculture increased between 40 and 165%. If vulnerabilities caused by poverty are reduced by supporting and recognising women as equal to men, this translates into households and communities that are less vulnerable and more resilient to the effects of climate change. It's all connected. Humanity cannot chase the reins forever. In our race to find more stability and sustainability in this changing world, perhaps it's time to take Jesus' lead and really recognise and value women equally to men, both as people and for the contribution they can make to lives, livelihoods and our world. Life Lessons from the Pup by Natalie Garrett So finally we caved. We bought the puppy. We had been strong and resolute in our parenting decision to say no in the face of almost daily requests over a period of probably three years. But when we moved out of London recently, we relented and got a puppy. We've had him for nearly a month now. He's 98% fluff and utterly glorious. He's taking us back to the early days of having our own human puppies. You mustn't let him out of your sight for a second, or he'll A, be literally under your feet so you'll tread on him, B, be eating something disgusting you didn't know was hiding under the sofa, or C, well, you can guess what C is. What I hadn't reckoned on when I collected this beautiful ball of snuffliness from his breeder was that he would turn into my life coach. I have learnt so much about life and specifically how to live it well in the last couple of weeks just by watching the way he lives his life. For our puppy, everything is an adventure. Someone's opening a door, what excitement awaits on the other side. Oh, you've leant down to talk to me. Maybe if I lie on my back, you will give my tummy a rub. And so on. Occasionally... expresses sadness because everyone's left the room and he can't follow us upstairs but otherwise his glass or bowl isn't just half full it's brimming over as long as he's been fed he's warm he's been let out to do what a dog's got to do and most importantly he's been shown love and affection he's happy and trusting and then falls asleep paws akimbo Somewhere I read that in the Bible there are 365 statements variously translated as do not worry, do not be afraid, do not be anxious. 365, one for every day of the year. And even if that rather neat number isn't actually accurate, although how amazing if it were true, clearly the Bible has a recurring theme around worry, fear and anxiety. Perhaps this most human of conditions is not such a new phenomenon as we think. God has been addressing issues of mental health for hundreds and thousands of years. Jesus talked about it a lot. He addressed it head on in one of his most famous teaching sessions. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food? and the body more than clothes. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? In my puppy, I see, mercifully not a bird flying around, a creature who trusts that he's going to be looked after. He trusts that he will have food and love, so he is free to enjoy chasing a ball or chewing a stick. He models to me the very wisdom of Jesus. He doesn't overcomplicate his life, he just lives it. As people, we seem to experience life as endlessly complicated. And, of course, sometimes it really is. Some of us carry all sorts of responsibilities that are very complicated indeed. Some of us don't have our most basic needs met, and that's awful. I pray we can find and help those around us in that situation. But for most of us, most of the time, life really isn't that complicated. If we have enough food, clothes on our back, somewhere warm to shelter, and someone to share love with, that's a good life right there. If we are privileged to have our basic needs provided for, then maybe we can worry less and enjoy more. But for some reason, it's not as easy as it sounds. Like countless others, I have carried with me the shadow of depression for many years. Through CBT and other therapies, I've had to learn new ways of thinking to keep the light on, as it were, and the darkness at bay. In this battle, Jesus' words provide powerful ballast against the tidal waves of the depressive storm. He encourages us to choose by an act of will to fill our minds with truth and with the evidence of good things, the promise of his faithful provision, thus forcing out the lies of the darkness. As we choose to fill our minds with the knowledge and love of God there is less room for worry and anxiety and we find rest for our minds. This choice brings freedom and the space for joy to grow and as we have all come to realise in recent years this battle is real for all of us in different ways and to different extents. Wonderfully My puppy seems to have excellent mental health. When Winston Churchill spoke of his own black dog, I don't think he was talking about a bouncing ball of fur begging for a tummy rub. But as I fill my mind with thoughts of Jesus and my puppy, I will continue to learn much about a life of simplicity and joy. And I am grateful to my children, wise beyond their years, who were instrumental in bringing this puppy-slash-life coach into our family. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, help others to discover it. Leave a review and rate us wherever you get, seen and unseen aloud. Help others discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than they might ever have imagined.